Welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas, you elevator pitch artists, build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes, dreamers, doers, join us in the foxhole, in the arena of life. This is the Grand Plaster Podcast, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the origin stories that made them who they are today. Grand Plaster here with James Farwell. Hey, James. Hey, Graham, how are you? Good. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, James, tell me, where did you grow up? I'm from New Orleans, Graham. And you're uh, still in New Orleans? I'm still in New Orleans. The only time that I wasn't in New Orleans is I went to uh, Cambridge uh, to study and, and, and came home from Cambridge in the, in the middle of my second year. Uh, to, this is in the early 70s to go on active duty as an army officer to go to Vietnam. In fact, I it wound up at the, I mean, literally, the, not just the 11th hour, the 11th hour and 59th minute, uh, deciding not to send us because they were uh, having to uh, put regular army officers out of, out of duty. And the RAs were much more valuable than reservists like myself. So they uh, decided not to uh, send any more people uh, who were reservists to, to Vietnam. Uh, but except for that, I've lived in New Orleans. I work nationally and internationally, but I'm from here. My wife's family is from here. And I just made a decision, maybe not a good one for business, but it's the one I made to get on a plane and fly back and forth to Washington for the work that I do. So, so you came back from Cambridge, almost went to Vietnam. Sounds like you got pulled back. Did you serve in the Army after that? Yeah, I was there until uh, 1975. Uh, I didn't have to do much, and and uh, it's it's funny. People have asked me about, you know, did I regret not going to Vietnam? I mean, I really never thought about it. I always uh, knew that I was slated to go, and and I was interested in it, and I didn't worry about it. Uh, I was supportive uh, at that time uh, of the war. Uh, in retrospect, having gone to Vietnam to give a speech for it for uh, on national security. It's the most capitalist country I've ever seen in my life. So I have to say, in retrospect, I, I think that the people that thought that uh, beating the communists in North Vietnam probably misjudged the future. But um, you know, when you're in ROTC at Tulane, where I went to undergraduate, you were doing things for ROTC four out of five days. So it, you know, sort of the connection to the army permeated your, your daily life as a student at that time. And there were demonstrations. I mean, people would throw eggs at you and all this other stuff. And it's not like you felt like a hero. I mean, that's just what I was doing. My father had been in the army. And so, uh, so you almost went to Vietnam. You finished up your ROTC at Tulane. I think you went to law school, right? At Tulane after that? I did law school at Tulane. And then after that, I went to Cambridge. I asked the army. I was a year ahead of myself in school. And so I, I said to the army, it's, it's obvious that you're, you're reducing the size of the forces and uh, uh, Cambridge will take me at any time. I can serve and then go, but I, it would be better for me if I could go now. And if you need me now, I'll go. But if not, uh, can I go? And they said, and they gave me permission to go for a year and then extended it for half a year. Uh, but then uh, I, I came home in the, uh, in the uh, I received orders and I came home in January. Of my second and year. Uh, your degree at Cambridge was in what? It's in law in comparative legal studies. Got it. So 
it looks like you came back from that and then you launched right into, you know, a 30 plus year uh, career in consulting. Is that right? You started your own firm? No, I went into a, a, a I was a lawyer uh, at a large firm in New Orleans, very old line firm called Chaff McCall. Then Chaff McCall, Phillips Toller and Sarpy, but today Chaff McCall, which is a corporate and, and defense firm. And I did litigation and business work. And I was, and I became a partner in that firm and I stayed in the firm until the end of 86 when I gave up my partnership and did a, uh, became of counsel there for five years. Now in uh, 19, uh, excuse me, Edmund, would you bring me my water, my water from over there, please? Thank you. Um, uh, uh, throughout all of that time, I've always been very, very interested in politics and have been involved in uh, politics at first in Louisiana, later on international uh, throughout most of my, uh, my life. Uh, I made a deal with the law firm that as long as I maintained my hours, they had no problem with my being a consultant in campaigns. And what, uh, if, if you don't mind me asking, what, what campaigns did you get involved with? Well, the one that probably was most important was in 1979. Uh, a colleague, a friend and I, elected the first Republican governor since Reconstruction. And that was a huge thing. What we should have done was gone to Washington right after that. I should have stopped practicing on going to Washington because that was the dawn of the political consulting uh, age. And uh, having elected Dave Treen governor, we probably could have made a, a great deal of money um, before the field became too crowded. Uh, and I continued to do campaigns from around 1975 uh, to about 19, uh, really until the time that I left uh, CHAP and, and, and beyond that. So at what point did you start to take an interest in the Middle East and in cybersecurity? Because you've done a lot of writing on those themes, but it sounds like you had a good kind of, uh, you know, several years of, of practicing law and getting involved with politics before any of that. Right. I've always thought the Middle East uh, was interesting politically. And that was really just a matter of, of uh, uh, knowing something about it because I read books about it and, and things like that. Cyber is different. Cyber is something that came up uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, cyber came up because I was a consultant to the uh, Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And I got a phone call, I'll never forget it, on a Tuesday morning from OUSD that gave me a tasking that said, we want you to write an article on cybersecurity law and uh, uh, be able to have it published. And we need you to do that within 48 hours. And I, I laughed. I said, well, that's great, but I don't know anything about cybersecurity. They said, well, you're a lawyer and lawyers get to learn things quickly. Well, of course, I thought they were crazy, yeah. uh, but uh, I, I did do it. And actually, the article was a good article and it actually did get published by a nice uh, magazine. Uh, but it was very, very interesting. And that put me on the trail of learning about cybersecurity, which is a continuing education as cybersecurity uh, evolves. Today, I'm a CIPP US, which is an advanced certification from the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And I advise the, the Pentagon on policy and strategy and legal authorities. As you know, in the military, you can only do what you're authorized to do. Whereas in private life, you can do anything that is not prohibited. And the, the, the whole issue of authorities and cyber for the military is a very gray zone area. 
uh, nobody really is quite sure who is authorized to do what, except for the president. It's a very, very interesting and increasingly important area. And so it's, it's, it's a core subject matter expertise that I have. And I've written a textbook on it with some of my colleagues called The, uh, the Legal Architecture of Cybersecurity. And I'm well published on it. My book, uh, my uh, commentary for the International Institute of Strategic Studies on Stuxnet remains their second most heavily downloaded paper in history. Uh, that mainly because the sequel to it, which is called The New Reality of uh, Cyber War, which is a bit, the better piece, uh, isn't, wasn't available for download for free, whereas Stuxnet, Stuxnet and the Future of Cyber War is available for free. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I remember when Stuxnet happened, it was pretty fascinating to watch the coverage um, after the fact and the kind of the, um, the uh, forensics around that. It's, it's extraordinary. What I thought was amazing is you, you, my writing has to be cleared and on, at least on national security and things that I touch. And uh, the way that I got it cleared, and I was very upfront, I'm not going to talk about who the clearing authority was, but the uh, way I got it cleared was I said, you will notice that I have keyed this to David Sanger's news reporting for the New York Times in his book. And I'm saying, assuming that what Sanger wrote was true, here are the implications. Uh -huh. um, and uh, that worked. They, they said, that's fine. If you, as you know, if you quote something that's a classified project, you need an official U.S. government source. Quoting the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post uh, doesn't get you out from under the uh, secrecy provisions. You've got to have the U.S. government uh, say something about it. I did sure. a, uh, uh, a monograph one time, which I chose ultimately not to publish because of the redactions. And it was reviewed by, again, I won't say who, but let's just say a rather broad set of agencies. And do you know that they made me redact all mention of Osama bin Laden's uh, raid, I said, wait a minute, the CIA gave active cooperation to the movie Zero Dark Thirty, and you're going to sit there and tell me I can't talk about that raid? That's yeah. right, they said. And I just, you know, I, when the thing came back, it looks like one of those things that you get on Project Blue Book when they ask the Air Force for information about UFOs and a document mm -hmm. comes back and it's got, let's just say, 40 lines on a page and uh, 38 and a half of them have big black lines running through it. Um, it, it was uh, crazy. So, so you left the law firm and then um, you've been basically kind of living the life of, you know, kind of a polymath, you know, writing an opera and writing books on multiple subjects and consulting for the government. Well, how would you kind of describe the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years of your professional life? Much less politics. All of my national security stuff, of course, is strictly nonpartisan. And I draw a really strong line. I never let one cross over into the other. Uh, I've done far, far, far fewer campaigns in the last 15 years. I was the executive director of John McCain's ad council when he ran for president in 2008. Newt Gingrich has been a longtime friend and client and uh, advised them. But for all intents and purposes, my work is focused on corporate consulting on the Pentagon in two areas, cyber, but more important, probably strategic communication and information warfare. And then it's uh, focused on my creative writing and my nonfiction writing. 
what what is some of your creative writing? I know we talked about it before the recording started. Well, right now the uh, this uh, opera, which is really a hybrid, we won't brand it as an opera. It's called the Fabulist. Top uh, magicians in the world call themselves fabulists, not magicians. And uh, this is a uh, uh, an opera that is based on one written in the 18th century by a man named Giovanni Castiella, who was more or less lost for time. Castiella was the favorite composer of Catherine the Great and Napoleon. He composed the coronation music for Napoleon, and he was Catherine the Great's favorite composer. And this was her favorite opera. But 18th century opera, for the most part, uh, didn't have a story. It was really a pretext to give singers an opportunity to sing. The, the uh, composer was really not, not important. The singers were important. But this one had a pretext that I liked, and uh, I was able to base it on that. Most of the work that this required was to develop a fully fledged play with fully developed characters. Uh, and I wrote the libretto, and I, of course, wrote the, uh, the play itself. Uh, and Paciello's uh, music uh, did it. Paciello's music, I would describe as a cross between Andrew Lloyd Webber and Rossini. Indeed, Rossini's most famous opera is The Barber of Seville. He got that from Paciello, who also wrote A Barber of Seville mm -hmm. and was considered to be his great opera. It's actually not a very good opera. Like a lot of these guys, uh, uh, some of the work they did was brilliant and some of it wasn't. Uh, Paciello wrote 93 operas. Only 16 have been recorded, to my knowledge. And of those 16, I would say four of them, five of them, are really a lot of fun. Uh, the imaginary astrologer was a hoot in terms of its music. Uh, but the other ones aren't, really don't have music you'd want to listen to. Rossini's uh, opera, The Barber of Seville, of course, is a masterpiece. And uh, Paciello was not nearly as good a composer as Rossini. But what he is, is he's delightful and charming. And that was what I needed for what is a romantic comedy. Uh, the, uh, uh, the opera will be produced uh, in London, hopefully in September by Stephen Levy, who's the Tony Award winner. It's fully capitalized. And we're just waiting for audiences to come back because you only get one bite at the apple. It's expensive to put on a production like this. So we want to make sure that we get an even shot. So the fabulous is one thing. I've written an, another play called Legal Insanity, which is a screwball comedy set in 1935 in New York. Um, that is also fully capitalized and will go on in London after uh, The Fabulous. So I've written uh, uh, Fabulous. The Fabulous? Yeah. It, it all sounds fabulous. Yeah. And I've written two novels and I've written several screenplays, uh, and of which two of the screenplays look like they'll be produced this year. So one hopes. <laughs> what is your um, discipline as a writer? How do you get yourself to write? And What's your joy in writing? I think like most people who write a lot, I'm prolific. I'm impelled to write. <clears throat> I think of the national security area, and you would be the same way with your strong background in national security. All of us want to be part of the discourse. Uh, as you know, in the movies, uh, when things come up, everybody <clears throat> sits around a big table, and it's very dramatic. And then they have a big debate over policy and then they make decisions. As you know, that is not how uh, policy decisions are made in national security. They're made in writing. You do papers and then there will be decision briefs uh, for the commanders to uh, make their decisions. 
So if you want to be part of that discourse and you want to influence what's happening, because as a consultant to the department, as you know, uh, we don't give policy advice. We provide options. If you say you want to do X, we'll say, well, here are three options and here's the upside and the downside. But it's not our job as a consultant to tell them what their policy should be. If you want to argue policy, on the other hand, it's very accepted if you want to publish in parameters, which the Army War College publishes, our strategic studies quarterly, or the national interest. There's a variety of national security publications, and that's a free fire zone. It's very, you can take any shots that you want and advocate anything you want. That's a very accepted part of uh, the discussion of ideas, and the military loves that and embraces it. So um, what is something that for your friends and family or colleagues or people that approach you for mentorship, something that you recommend to them, either a book that you recommend or a habit? What, what are, what's some regular advice that you give out? The only way to become a good writer is to write. There are no shortcuts. <clears throat> Malcolm Gladwell talks about putting in your 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. And I think that there's a lot to that. Um, the other thing I asked Mike Bloomberg one time, what it uh, takes in his mind to be successful and because, you know, he's been very successful and what he does. And he looked at me and he said, well, obviously you have to have some talent, but once you have that, he said, there are only two qualities that really matter. One is hard work. And the other is recognizing that you win the tough ones by inches. And that's, that advice is something that has always stayed with me and been uh, a lodestone for how I approach what I'm doing. The difference between winning and losing important things very often is very narrow margins. You really, it's, it's, it's putting in that extra effort. It's what makes, uh, oh, I don't know, let's use the, I live in New Orleans, let's use the New Orleans Saints football team as, a, uh, as, as an example. Uh, you know, our, our running backs uh, that are, uh, have been stars, uh, you know, they always say, well, you know, it's just amazing how you put in that extra push to get those extra yards. That's what made Drew Brees or makes Tom Brady such great quarterbacks. You just, you don't take no for an answer. You need persistence. You keep going. And as a special ops person in your own background, I think you found that's probably true with the things that you've done. Yeah, there's books that people recommend, you know, The Slight Edge, and, you know, there's um, certainly Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers talks about some of these types of things. But yeah, I think for myself, uh, I'm a sailor, and I like looking back at some of the stories of the America's Cup. I know there's some of the um, kind of extremist uh, captains that would cut their toothbrushes in half and things like that to cut weight. Uh, but it's all about, in a sailing race, it's all about... Um, over the long term, trimming the sail, you know, and, and paying attention to the details so that you can cut, you know, because just get a, a quarter of a mile faster, you know, right? Uh, and, the, and it all adds up at the finish line. Yeah. But yeah, that's really interesting. It's really what you have to do. I mean, there's just, I mean, unless you really want to write, uh, unless you're paid to do it, but if you really want to write, you do it and you yeah. just find the time. Uh, to do it. When I'm not working with clients, I, I, I write and uh, I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It's a way of self-expression. It's a way of uh, completing one's personality. And for me, I like it. But what I think is important for me is doing both very serious nonfiction 
and then doing my, uh, my, my, uh, my films and plays. And they tend to be romantic comedies. Um, and so I think that contrast is a healthy thing uh, for people to, uh, to do. It, it keeps you humble. Do you weave in any of your legal knowledge into any of your plots? Um, no, uh, not in fiction. In my nonfiction, my background in law has become extremely helpful, especially in dealing with cyber, but in all of it. I mean, when you think about uh, military problems, uh, we uh, bind ourselves not only to American law, but also to international law, which is manifest in the Charter of the United Nations. And as you know, uh, Graham, the, the two key provisions there are Article 2.4 and use of force, and Article 51 giving nations the right to defend against armed aggression. Neither of those notions is defined. And so, but you need to pay attention to those in terms of policy, in terms of understanding the parameters that we operate within. Russia doesn't accept any of that as we've seen in, in Ukraine but it is the way that we work, it's the way NATO works. And uh, understanding these legal parameters, I think has been important in the kinds of advice uh, that I've been able to give the Pentagon. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that in the world of fiction, there's plenty of courtroom drama um, and people are fascinated by that. So you have obviously legal backing, but it sounds like your writing has been more escapist from that world, at least on the fiction side, you know, to kind of explore the rom-com, you know, or uh, you know maybe even just pure comedy, but that's fascinating. So what what is um, a way that if people are listening to this podcast that they can participate in something that you've done? Well, Chris, the one thing they could do is I hope that they will purchase a copy of my new book, The Corporate Warrior, which is available on Amazon. And for that book, I interviewed a lot of top shelf flag officers: David Petraeus, Jim Stravitas, who, as you know, was. Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and who also wrote the introduction to this book. Um, Spider Marks, Mark Kimmett, and all those guys. Admiral Bobby Inman, uh, who was the former director of the National Security Agency, who is a riot to, uh, to interview. He, he was very shy about giving the interview and was talked into it by another colleague. And I think he was glad that he did it because he was really a lot of fun. But I'll tell you, you talk to somebody like that and you understand why a guy like that became a legend. Uh, in his own time. So the book takes the precepts of military strategy and leadership that the military embraces and it applies it to the business world. And the story the book had is full of stories. It tells the backstories of how people who, you know, maybe like you and me who decided, you know, hey, let's get together at a coffee shop and, and start a business and maybe we can be a unicorn company, a company worth a billion dollars. And you think that people don't really get to do that. The answer is, uh, people with imagination and energy and persistence have done it. The people, uh, uh, Jeff Rader, who started Harry's Razors, did it. Um, uh, Kevin Plank, who started Under Armour, did it. Lots of people have done it. And the backstories of how these guys and women uh, became successful, I thought was fascinating. And so mm -hmm. it, it tells a lot of those stories. If you read it online, I have links to the YouTube uh, 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 ads uh, uh, that these companies uh, have uh, broadcast so that you can actually see the ads that I talk about. But it's about how people have dealt with marketing and leadership and culture. It deals with crisis communication. It deals with cyber. And it's, it's, it's written to be a, a great read 
interesting to the military since people in the military will retire and go into business interesting to business people because they have a lot to learn from the way the military does things commercial advertising agencies generally speaking have this view that if i can create a great feeling about a product that's how you sell it and that may be an element for certain things certainly feeling good about drinking a coke is a good way to get you to sell coke although that's not the way that they that coca-cola necessarily goes about selling coke their latest campaigns are really capitalized on uh centering a millennial and younger market uh and capitalizing on the notion that they are part of a sharing society um which is something that people my age uh were not part of it, it isn't been part of the cultural ethic that we've done but the best companies are companies that aim to improve the lives of people and that are rooted in really strong core values integrity, honor, loyalty, excellence, discipline, all the things that would make uh, a top military officer become a real leader. But that also applies to the business world. And this book, as I say, is a very fun read. It's available on Amazon. I hope everybody that uh, is watching this podcast or listening to it will go to Amazon and, and buy a copy of it. Uh, the name of the book again, the title? Corporate Warrior. Corporate Warrior. Okay. So we'll be uh, sure to include the, the details in the show notes. And I want to thank you for your time, James. Any any parting comments to anyone on the podcast? No, I think that uh, this has been great. I've been honored to be a part of it. I'm familiar with your background. Thank you for your service. Oh, you, sure. In my, in my mind, people like you are the real heroes of this country, you don't always get the recognition that you deserve, but people like me who are aware of it uh, appreciate uh, the courage and the sacrifices that you all have made. And, you know, we're lucky to have, live in a country that, that, that has people like you. They do this because you think it's the right thing to do and it's important to your values. So thank you for having me on the show and, and thank you again. Thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster Podcast. Get show notes and more at grahamplaster.com.